Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Helper. And I am the second host, Aaron Matte. How's it going, Katie? Good, you? Great. And a reminder that uh, if you sign up to support us at usefulidiots.substack.com, you get all kinds of great bonus content, including our Thursday throwdown, where this week we're going deep on the Twitter files and that crazy yeah. congressional hearing that was recently held, uh, where co-founder of this show, Matt Taibbi, along with Michael Schellenberger, appeared and got pilloried by Democrats who are outraged at the idea that there could be journalism done on how U.S. intelligence officials are censoring social media. So tune yeah. in to Thursday Throwdown for that. Definitely, which again, you can find at usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com. Well, on today's show, we speak to Christian Parenti, who is such a great guest, and he is an economist, which is such great timing, because who better to talk to about the Silicon Valley Bank? And we're really looking forward to that. Also, just wanted to give people a quick update about a very important story. So friend of show and former guest, and I'm sure future guest, Roger Waters of Pink Floyd fame, has had his concert in Frankfurt, Germany, canceled by German officials who are accusing him of anti-Semitism, which is so ridiculous. And he's accused of anti-Semitism because he uh, defends the rights of Palestinians and he criticizes Israel, which you're, of course, allowed to do because Israel is a government and it has policies uh, and that does not make you an anti-Semite. So uh, it's really important that people know about this. I also helped make a petition that you can find on change.org. We'll put a link to it in uh, the show notes. And really cool people like Susan Sarandon, Cornel West, Noam Chomsky, um, Anwar Hadid, who's the brother of Bella and Gigi Hadid, Gabor Mate, a lot of really famous artists, uh, filmmaker Ken Loach. It's a great list. So check that out and, and sign the petition on change.org. All right, let's get to our four basic food groups. What do we have for Democrats suck? Okay, so for Democrats suck, here is a clip of uh, Rep. Jamie Raskin responding to a bill proposed by Republicans that's a uh, called the Protecting Speech from Government Interference Act, and it basically would prohibit federal employee censorship. So here he is reacting to this. They're agnostic about, well, the truth and lies. Who knows what really happened? Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Well, they've got a perfect bill for you then. We call it the Putin Protection Act. That's what it is, the Putin Protection Act. Distinguished gentleman from New York explained Putin spent millions of dollars in 2016 to pump propaganda, electoral sabotage into our political system. He did. Every security agency in the country told us that. We got a bipartisan report from the Senate saying it. They're agnostic about it. They, when it comes to Putin, they see no evil, they hear no evil, none of it, no. But we know that it happened, okay? That's Putin's plan. Why? Putin cannot beat America politically. He can't beat us economically. He can't beat us militarily. Putin can't beat us philosophically. There's one thing he's got, the internet. Why? Because we're a wide open country. And so he says, let's take advantage of it. Let's go on their social media platform. We'll put people who oppose Putin on the internet in jail, which they do. If you send a, a tweet against Putin, you're going to jail. You, you put out a tweet against his filthy imperialist war, which some of them support in Ukraine. You put out a tweet against that in Russia, you're going to jail. But he says, 
Let's take advantage of America's openness. We'll take advantage of them, and we're going to put out propaganda. We'll lie about when the election is. We'll say it's on Thursday when it's on Tuesday. We'll tell people to go vote next week, whatever. And that's the genesis of this whole thing. We have our security agencies who alert social media, and they say they're putting up fraudulent information on your platform. And now they come forward and they say, the Democrats are trying to, what? Tell the truth. Not Democrats, the government, our, our paid federal government agencies are trying to tell the social media when foreign That's malign actors like Russia and China and Iran are trying to interfere in our elections. That's what this is about. Putin Protection Act. They want Putin and Xi to run free over our platforms, and then they want to fine federal government employees thousands of dollars if they alert our government to what foreign malign actors are doing. And the whole justification for it is their silly obsession with Hunter Biden's laptop and this New York Post story, which was taken down by Twitter for one day, three weeks before the election, as an exercise of their private decision-making, then Elon Musk buys Twitter, and he fires six journalists because they disagree with him. They've got no problem with that because, of course, it's a private entity. They can do whatever they want. They want to fire journalists. They fire them. They want to take a story down for an hour or a day. They can do that. And then they want to turn that into the basis for handcuffing the entire government of the United States so we can't protect ourselves against Vladimir Putin and President Xi. Give me a break. I yield back. You know, it's weird, unrelated to the um, content of what he was saying. And I'm, I know I'm going to offend some people, including the person I'm comparing him to. But you know who his voice kind of sounds like? I never realized it's Glenn Greenwald. Oof. <laughs> I don't think Glenn would have like that. I know. But uh, doesn't it kind of sound like it? I don't hear it. No. I, hear, I don't hear it when he talks normally, but I hear it when he's yelling. Huh. Him yelling well, sounds like Greenwald talking. Well, very different in their messaging because yeah, you'll never confuse the two of them once, no. if you actually hear what they're saying yet because raskin is being just an unhinged mccarthy first of all he says so many false things he says that putin spent millions of dollars in 2016 to interfere in the election he's referring to a russian troll farm that which u.s government admitted that it had no evidence tying this russian troll farm to the russian government but even if every piece of content from this russian troll farm was personally authorized by Vladimir or personally written by Vladimir Putin himself, it'd be a joke if this came from the Russian government. Because the part that people like Raskin never tell you is that all the content from this troll farm had nothing to do with the election, except for a really small percentage. And he talks about how they spent millions of dollars. They spent thousands of dollars on dumb Facebook ads and memes that nobody saw and that were barely about the election. There was a court filing in 2019 that concluded that uh, just $2,930 of Facebook spending by the Internet Research Agency, this Russian troll farm, uh, had to do with the election. $2,930. So Jamie Raskin spins that into Putin spent millions of dollars to influence our election. And he talks about all the intelligence agencies coming to this conclusion. That's not true either. Uh, but of course, that's not the worst part. The worst part is this meltdown 
to justify social media censorship in the name of stopping Vladimir Putin. So everything now is about Putin right. and that can justify everything. And he talks and then he lies and says that the New York Post story was only taken down for an hour on one day. That's not true. It was over multiple days and you couldn't share it. You couldn't share that story. And that was about right. a presidential candidate before the election. So, you know, this is just like this. This is the Democrats now. This is the, this is like it's it's it's. It's insane because not only is their position, I think, wrong in supporting censorship, but look how they sound in the process. Like, listen to his tone of voice. Totally unhinged. How unhinged he ha- sounds. Yeah. It's nuts. It sounds like a joke. Like, you know who that helps? Putin. <laughs> yeah. You know yeah. who's happy about that? Putin. Yeah, it's everything. Everything. Yeah. Uh, who does this appeal to except for cold warriors? Like, does any average citizen look at this and say, oh, yeah, okay, well, I don't want to help Putin, so I support right. censorship. You know, it just doesn't appeal to people. Anyway, that's a good preview of what we have in today's Thursday Throwdown. There's a lot there's a lot more where that came from. Yeah, you're going to love it, guys. You're really going to love it. So what do we got for Republican stuff? So for Republican stuff, you can always count on Republicans to seize any opportunity to advocate cutting Social Security. So Senator Bill Cassidy, a Republican of Louisiana, he's seizing the opportunity of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank to try to disparage Social Security. So here he is on Fox News. Social Security is a Silicon Valley bank of retirement systems. It is going broke. It's just a question of whether we let it bleed to death or whether we do something right now. We need a credible plan. If a politician tells you that he doesn't want to fix social, that there's no problem, they're either too old or too rich to care. Your benefits are going to be cut by 25%. If we do nothing, when it goes broke in nine years. What's so funny is that I don't know what's happening. Republicans are just making advertisements for the Democrats. I mean, Biden said during the State of the Union that they wanted to go after Social Security. Republicans were up in arms about it. They said that he was lying. And then most Republicans who were supportive of, um, you know, putting entitlements on the table, potentially cutting them, potentially sunsetting them. They're like, oh, no, we never did that. He's lying. He's lying. And now they're coming back out of the woodwork and and putting those things back on the table. I don't know why they're doing it. I don't know why they're not just keeping it to themselves. <laughs> they love to go after Social Security because the idea that like the principle of having a system in which vulnerable people are taken care of for their basic right. needs, it's right. just they can't they can't sit rest knowing that that exists and that they're part of a government that it provides that. So they have, they're right. always agitating to cut it. And they've been warning for years, like the social security is going broke unless we do something. And what they want to do is privatize it. That's what George W. Yeah. Bush wanted to do. And that's what they're agitating for. And it's so funny that he's seizing on the opportunity of the failure of the Silicon Valley bank, which is, the, you know, not fully, but at least partly the product of deregulation. And, Mostly the product you know, of it, yeah. Like uh, executives being paid a lot of money, like that Silicon Valley executive who cashed out right before it collapsed. Uh, there's no like, you know, uh, and like there's no like uh, like laws that are deregulating Social Security and no like Social Security heads are holding big fundraisers for prominent politicians. Unlike in the case of the Silicon Valley Bank. Right. It's so right. funny to draw that to try to like draw a linkage between the two. Yeah. I just don't know why they're saying it out loud. Again, you can't have a thing, a, a society in which, you know, like your elderly na- neighbor has their basic needs met because their social security but, check. But it to, polls, you know, I thought it polls yeah. badly. I thought that's why all these people were la- were lying. 
and saying that they hadn't suggested it. Maybe they, they saw some polling that we don't know about. No, it does poll badly, but the thing is they're so devoted to undermining ideologues. Yeah, they are. They are. They really believe that they don't believe in providing for people's basic needs. So yeah. they'll take any opportunity they can to try to undermine it. Ridiculous. And that's why Republicans suck. Indeed. All right. What do we have for Isn't That Weird? Okay. So for Isn't That Weird, we have a very interesting story. It's it's a heartwarming story in some ways. Uh, it's about a, well, actually, let me, let me not give it away. I'm not going to, I'm not going to read the headline because that gives it away. So let me just read from uh, UPI.com. Okay, the Modesto Fire Department in California said a call came in from a cat owner who reported hearing meowing coming from the engine of their vehicle after driving seven miles from their home to the rodeo fairgrounds on the east edge of Modesto. They arrived and discovered the caller's cat had crawled into the engine compartment and the feline's foot was caught in the transmission line, but they were able to free the cat and reunite it. And all the cat suffered was a minor foot injury, some singed hair, um, but he's uh, expected to make a full recovery. And this isn't the first time this has happened, Aaron. Like to that that cat or in cat That would be terrible. If that cat had, if that had happened to that cat before, he would have had, well, they do have nine lives. So I guess two lives wouldn't be that impressive. But um, firefighters in Oviedo, Florida, conducted a similar rescue in January when a kitten spotted wandering loose on a road fled into the engine compartment of a parked car. The rescuers ended up removing a wheel from the car to reach the kitten's hiding spot. So that's cute. I'm glad they saved him in both, in both cases. But it's a little weird driving with a kitten in your engine. Absolutely. And that cat's a daredevil. It is a daredevil, yeah. yeah. Or a scaredy cat. Or a scaredy cat. Yeah, yeah, one of the two, yeah. Well, thank God the, that cat's okay. Yeah. Isn't uh, that cute? Isn't that isn't weird? That yeah. Isn't that lucky? Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of animals, uh, we have an animal-themed uh, Isn't That Terrible? And uh, new developments in the ongoing quest to find out what is Havana Syndrome? Because what we know about Havana Syndrome is what it's not, which was what we were told uh, which is that it was Cuba or China or Russia zapping U.S. officials with powerful microwave weapons. And that's been debunked many times, including most recently by the U.S. intelligence community. So there are ongoing efforts to find out what is this Havana syndrome that U.S. officials serving abroad claim has been giving them headaches and all that stuff. And now there's speculation that it was maybe just crickets, like in Cuba. But one way uh, our U.S. government officials have been trying to get to the truth has been just hurt animals. And this comes from the Daily Beast. Check out this headline. U.S. military trying to give ferrets Havana syndrome report. The Pentagon is backing animal experimentation in an attempt to determine the cause of the mysterious Havana syndrome that has afflicted scores of U.S. diplomats, intelligence officers, and other government personnel abroad. The testing primarily involves using radio frequency waves to see if Similar unexplained symptoms, as have been reported, arise in the animal subjects, according to public documents and three people familiar with the matter who spoke with Politico. The U.S. military granted Michigan's Wayne State University $750,000 to test the waves on ferrets. Information on the grant posted online shows. Uh, so... They're, they're not trying only, to ferret out. They're trying to ferret out the information. Sorry. They're trying to ferret. Yeah, trying, yeah. But that is just. I mean, so on top of you know, the fact that they already passed a bill to give free health care to all the supposed victims of Fennis syndrome, now they're shelling out close to a million dollars to 
do these t- cruel tests on ferrets to see if they can zap them with brain with uh, with microwave weapons. It's um, it's messed up. I want to see testing on all the people in media who promoted the idea that this really was a microwave weapon from Cuba and Russia and China. And what is the syndrome that they're afflicted with that made them so credulous to parrot that story, even though there was no evidence for it whatsoever? That, yeah, that, you're right. What is that's that a syndrome, syndrome I'm that's a good question. Maybe yeah. that's what Havana syndrome really is. I, I'd say so. I would say so. We should rename it. I mean, that should we should define it. That's what it should be. Havana <laughs> syndrome is the syndrome that causes people to believe in the Havana syndrome hoax. Fair enough. I'm on board for that. Yeah. I'm on board for that. And that's our four food groups. We're so excited to be talking to Christian Parenti. Christian Parenti is a professor of economics at John Jay College, CUNY. His most recent book is Radical Hamilton. We're going to be talking to him about a, a piece he wrote called Will the Left Stand Up to the Deep State? And we're going to be talking to him about the Silicon Valley Bank. Welcome back, Christian. Thank you for having me back. It's nice to see you both. So we wanted to have you on to talk about uh, kind of the left and why it should be standing up to the deep state. Spoiler alert, it's not. Um, But we also want to talk to you because you are an economist about the Silicon Valley bank situation. Uh, What are your thoughts on this, whether it's a bailout, how it compares to 2008, um what should have been done and how it happened and why it happened okay yeah well i'm actually not formally an economist i teach in an economics department but i'm a geographer but i yeah, i'm a but, political i'm a political economist I yeah you're a political economy. economist yeah. for us you're an economist yeah. thanks yeah um we want to have you on tristan because you're a geographer so we want yeah. to have you on to talk about svb as geographer yeah yeah but what was your PhD in? What was your PhD in actually? It was geography and, and sociology at the London School of Economics. Right. It was just it was just co-supervised. I had a, you know one one person in geography, one person in sociology. It was about cities. It was about the American political economy, and it was about the role of police repression in in neoliberalism. But that was a long, long time ago. But in terms of SVB, um, you know, I think whether it's a bailout or not is to really miss the point. It's definitely class war, and uh, I have an article coming out. Maybe later today or tomorrow with gray zone on all this. And I think at the, you know, underneath all the specifics, there's a very important point which links this to the COVID crisis. This is the result of the really ill thought out lockdowns. What the government did with these lockdowns was, on the one hand, crush the economy, and on, on the other hand, keep it alive with massive injection of low interest government debt. That low interest government debt was absolutely essential because of the lockdowns. You can't tell large parts of the workforce not to go home. I mean, to go home and then not expect the economy to, to suffer. So there had to be massive spending and there were a lot of good things done in that spending. Actually, Child poverty was reduced by half because of the increase in the length of unemployment payments and the increase in the amount of unemployments and the stimulus checks, right? And there's also the Paytech Paytech Protection Program. There's a provider relief fund, $178 billion to keep hospitals afloat, which were in the exact same position because they were told to, by state governors in their lockdowns, to 
basically clear the decks and keep everything that wasn't COVID related out, which meant that many hospitals went into financial crisis. You basically had some hospitals that were overwhelmed with COVID and others that were totally empty. So they needed this money. There were, you know, the American working class is in fact so poor and beaten down that that little bit of redistribution had very positive effects such as the having of the child poverty rate, personal savings rate went up by 8%. But the combination of people, of, of massive amounts of purchasing power being injected to the economy at the same time that production and distribution are being hammered led to inflation. And then, you know, so you have interest rates go down by April of 2020. The federal funds rate is at like 0.5%. Treasury bonds are being sold at around the same rate. Man, it's like 0.7% on two-year treasury bonds. Those essentially zero interest rates stay in place until February of 2022. And then the Fed starts raising interest rates, and they're now approaching 5%. And what happened for banks was that amidst that section of purchasing power in the hands of businesses and consumers, there weren't necessarily immediate outlets for a lot of this. So deposits soared. A lot of companies and, and individuals put money in the bank, right? So banks had tons of deposits and they didn't really have that much to invest in. Their, their loans only increased by 7%. So they had lots and lots of cash on hand. So they had to do something with it. So they bought all of this cheap, low earning debt. Now that interest rates are going up, more government debt is being issued, and it's paying around 5%. So banks are eager to get rid of this low interest debt and shift into this higher interest debt. As interest rates go up, borrowing becomes more difficult. So firms that had banked a lot of money are increasingly drawing down their deposits. Trump also changed the rules that allowed banks to have smaller cash reserves. So SVB found itself in a situation where it didn't have enough deposits to cover its bills, and it started to sell this low-interest debt that it had. It started dumping it at its below, at below face value, and it lost almost $2 billion doing that. When they announced this loss, it was like a billion point eight, I think. When they announced that loss, then its stock dropped by 60%. And within 48 hours, it was taken into receivership by the federal government. And then Signature Bank in New York went under, or was taken into receivership in the same way. And part of the issue is that a lot of these wealthy depositors have more than the FDI insured $250,000 in their bank accounts. They have, in many cases, $10 million in bank accounts, all of which is uninsured. So that that added to the panic and and you ended up with an actual old fashioned bank run with people lined up in front of the doors of SVB. So yeah, this piece uh, that's forthcoming in the gray zone, I point the finger at these lockdowns and now lockdown fanatics will say it was, it was essential that we do this because the virus is so deadly. Now the virus was very deadly, but it wasn't as deadly as first thought. There were immediately studies, almost immediately, studies coming out about the real infection fatality rate, and it's it was much worse than the flu. It's a very serious disease. 
but it wasn't as bad as we thought. And so there was a ample body of literature showing that lockdowns were a very destructive tool to an ineffective tool to use to fight this. But the whole thing had gotten totally politicized. I laid all this out a year ago in a very long gray zone article. People have different theories on this. I think Trump derangement syndrome is central to the politicization of the pandemic. Then the profiteering by Pfizer, et cetera, piles into it. Paranoia about the funding of the Wuhan lab by Tony Fauci and his crew, I think, is an important part of the the hysteria. But I think at the heart of the matter is Trump derangement syndrome and both sides in the political struggle, the Republicans and the Democrats agreeing, as it were, to fight over the question of lockdowns. Late March, Trump says, I want to open by Easter, late, late March 2020, right? He says, I want to, I want the economy open by Easter. And at that point, it was off to the races. The beginning of March, the beginning of the second week of March, Bill de Blasio, then mayor of New York, says, if you're 50 years old, if you're younger than 50 years old, this is like a flu. It's not something to worry about. This is really a concern for people with comorbidities who are older. Two weeks later, he's shutting down all the schools. And it's in that moment in late March that it really, the pandemic gets really politicized. And Trump threw down the gauntlet by saying, I want the economy opened in April. I interpret that as him basically challenging the Democrats, saying, okay, you guys, you want to open, you go, you want to own the lockdowns? Go for it. I'll own the reopening. And he miscalculated. He thought that the the virus would burn out and that there wouldn't be a second and third and fourth wave. And at that point, it was off to the races. At the same time that Trump says that, there's then this sort of genuine grassroots anti-lockdown movement of small business people. But it's also stirred up by and funded and helped along by the DeVos family funds and sort of donors trust types. And you get protests at like 35 state capitals and, and, you know, these horrible, scary images of dudes with guns marching on state capitals. Uh, and it just at that point, any kind of rational discussion about, okay, what's the real infection fatality rate? Should we actually lock down the economy this hard? Will there be negative consequences? All, you know, all that was out the window. And what you got was this artificial economic crisis, this, you know, massive decline. You have uh, an annualized, at an annualized rate, it was a 31% decline in GDP in the second quarter of 2020. There was a V-shaped recovery, and that was because the federal government appropriated ultimately $4.7 trillion and pushed over, you know, the, up, up to this moment, it's, has pushed about $4.2 trillion into the economy. So that gets back to the bank. So all of that produced inflation, and it was in response to surging inflation. So in February 2022, when interest rates are at, I think it was like 0.7%, the federal funds rate, you've got inflation reaching 7.9%. And so the, the Fed has to really start ratcheting up interest rates and that then creates this, this problem with the debt that the banks have. I mean, who knows what will happen? It seems like the federal government is doing all it can to reassure the markets and, and staunch the bleeding. But I imagine this is going to result in 
lower interest rates from the Fed and more and more longer persisting inflation. But we shall see. And pulling back, you know, we have a bailout problem in global capitalism increasingly. I mean, these these massive bailouts are are we're getting habituated to them, and and that is highly dangerous. And it it points at underlying pathologies in the economy. We need a re-regulation of our economy. We need socialism, whatever, right? But in the short term, we need serious regulation of the banking sector. We need a public bank, a postal bank. We need uh, to absorb a bunch of this excess liquidity that the ultra-rich have. We need to tax that away. And we need long-term investment in the real economy. We need tra a transformative program of re green and equitable reindustrialization. Um, we have this infrastructure bill and there's, you know, there's been some, some good stuff in, in some of this recent Biden legislation. Uh, we'll see what that does for the real economy. But right now we're just stuck in this cycle of financial crisis and then de facto socialization, you know, de facto nationalization, bailouts uh, of the banks. And, you know, the issue with bailouts, I mean, don't get caught in, in the semantics of this. It's like, Remember that the TARP, the Troubled Assets Relief Program that Treasury ran, Treasury actually made $20 billion on that. They went into the market with $700 billion. They bought up all this junk and they held it for you know, almost 10 years and then slowly but surely sold it off. And in the end, the taxpayer actually made money on that. So the issue isn't like some narrow accounting. It's the issue is much larger about the the financialization of the U.S. economy, the deindustrialization of the U.S. economy, the incredible inequality of the U.S. economy, and the increasing volatility and danger of this situation. What about the fact that the lobbies for SBB actually pushed for the kind of deregulation that allowed this in some ways to happen? Well, I mean, yeah, what about it? These these bankers can't think long term. I mean, this is why the capitalist state exists, because the capitalist class can't reproduce its own system. There's too much interfirm competition. There's too much short termism. And so the state has to play the role of referee. It has to be the adult occasionally being like, yes, yes, we know you want chocolate cake for dessert, I mean, chocolate cake for dinner, but you can't have it. Yeah, you have to eat your vegetables, then you can have chocolate cake. I mean, the banks would, they would like to have zero requirements for cash reserves. Uh, and they would like a program that would just guarantee any losses. I mean, and that's what they're getting at the moment, right? It's short term, but the federal government is saying that it's going to make all the depositors in these banks whole. And that's to prevent further bank runs. I mean, it, it's a hostage situation, as one uh, financial analyst put it. And, I mean, it is. You can't, you can't say, well, the banks are corrupt, the banks are greedy, F them, let the whole thing go down the drain, because we all go with it. The whole economy goes with it, right? So the problem requires a longer project of reconstruction. So no matter what, they just... They they just they can't it's it's too big to fail and but in terms of making the depositors whole isn't the idea now that I've heard that the government is going to fund that not via the taxpayers but through a new uh, tax on Wall Street or it's going to force Wall Street based and big banks to pay for this that's what I've heard at least yeah I mean they said that the, the FDIC will 
will put a levy on banks to pay for this. That might that might work if if it's not too much money. If if things get really out of hand, then they'll they'll find other means. In, in the recent bailouts, there's there have been red lines that the Fed and Treasury wouldn't cross, and then they do in an emergency. So during the 2020 crash, the COVID crash, the Fed said that we're not going to backstop municipal bonds, but then they did because they had to. So, you know, they'll they'll the main thing is they'll do what they have to do. And in terms of, well, you know, what's in it for us as taxpayers? I mean, whether or not we inject public money directly into these banks or whether we basically tax the banking system into a special fund and put it back into the banks, you know, we pay in terms of unemployment, low growth, high inflation. What's happened because of this advance, this this massive injection of purchasing power due to the COVID crisis, the self-inflicted lockdown-based COVID crisis, is that inflation has surged to, you know, almost eight, you know, over eight percent, while it's coming down a little bit, down to six and a half percent, and wages have grown to some extent, but they've grown about 5%. And it's very uneven. There are certain sectors where wages haven't grown at all. So that means working people are taking a serious economic hit. You know, they're they're losing you know at least 3% of their income. When when your when your wages go up 5% and prices go up 8%, your real purchasing power goes down 3%. And for a lot of people, it's more like your real purchasing power is going down like eight, seven, six percent. And when you live hand to mouth, that really matters. So Crystal Ball tweeted out, whatever you think of the SVB bailout, I want you to really sit with the fact that rich VCs just got an insta bailout while the people of East Palestine can't even get a straight answer as to whether their kids have been poisoned. That That's a great point. And imagine what it would cost to bail out the people of East Palestine. It seems like they should all be moved, that there's no way to clean up this spill that everyone there should be bought out their their homes should be purchased at their value prior to the accident and they should be allowed to move elsewhere and they should be given free health care and obviously yeah real testing and real information none of that's happening it's totally outrageous because it really wouldn't cost that much given the kinds of money that this government throws at the rich throws at war efforts that are in large part, basically corporate welfare schemes for Raytheon and Lockheed and Northrop Grumman, et cetera. Yeah, what would it, what would it cost to buy out everyone in in the you know impact zone? We have the money, whatever it would cost. Yeah, you never will hear that argument, though. Obviously, from the media or politicians. Yeah. It's outrageous. I mean, and you could you could speculate. Why don't they do that? You know, why doesn't the Biden administration do that? It would be super popular. What would the you know, you know, the Republicans would then be on the defensive. They'd have to argue against this and call it socialism. And Democrats would be out there and say, you know, you you can call it whatever you want, you know, and you're free to move in here. You know, why don't you move into these houses and you drink the water? Okay, be great. But I guess they're afraid of the slippery slope that if you give anything to working class interests there's the threat of a good example people get the wrong idea they want more of this they see that it works they'll say well they they were able to relocate everybody at east palestine why can't they have a program like that for flint to 
Flint or yeah, led remediation all over the country. I mean, you know, so they live in terror of the working class somehow through politics getting a larger share of the general social output. And and uh, that, yeah, that defines both parties. So do you think that what they did made sense? Did they have to do it? Should they have done it in a different way with this bailout? This bailout? Yeah. Yeah. I think that this is like, you know, this is triage. This is the tourniquet on a shattered leg. And that that has to happen. You, As I said earlier, you cannot let the U.S. financial system collapse and not bring down the rest of the economy. What I think should have been done is that we should have been, particularly on the left, we should have been more critical of the pandemic response. And um, people were very cavalier about the risk of inflation on the left that was totally dismissed. Modern monetary theory momentarily seemed to be in the saddle. And it was you know, it was not out of the question at all to think, wait a minute, injecting this much purchasing power into the economy at the same time that you're telling people to stay home from work and scaring people so that they want to retire if they can. I mean, this is going to constrict supply chains. And that's, you know, there's going to be uh, more demand and less supply, and that's going to send prices up. And that's exactly what happened. You have a piece at Compact Magazine urging the left to stand up to the deep state. Can you tell us why you wrote this and also why you think the left should be standing up to the deep state and why it's not? Yes, the, the article was about the House Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, which is billing itself as the new church committee. This is an attempt to look into what the FBI and other domestic intelligence agencies are doing. And the history of all those agencies, but particularly the FBI, is that they have primarily targeted the left. So much of the article deals with the history of COINTELPRO, right? That COINTELPRO begins in 1956, targeting the Communist Party and the Socialist Workers Party. It then goes on to target the civil rights movement. In 1964, there's a brief little program uh, against the Ku Klux Klan because the Klan is like off the hook with violence. And there's lots and lots of pressure on the FBI from liberals to do something about that. Mostly the FBI tolerated the Klan, but there is a little campaign against the Klan. And they, then the FBI uses that to get more legitimacy, more autonomy, more power. And then they resume attacking the left with campaigns against the new left, particularly the Black Panther Party, where the gloves really come off. But they were also through COINTELPRO, infiltrating trade unions, AFSCME, which is not a particularly radical union. One one of these informers, at that time, the FBI only had 1,500 informants that we know about. Now we know that they have 15,000 and probably more, three times that much informally part-time. One of these informants felt ripped off and had a beef with the FBI and went public and sued. And that's how we know about infiltration of AFSCME because he was sent in to disrupt their attempts to organize garbage sanitation workers in Tampa, Florida. He also infiltrated the United Electrical Union, which is historically a very left union. And uh, they were organizing down in in Florida uh, in a Westinghouse factory. And so, you know, 
then in the early 1970s, there's a theft from a FBI office of a bunch of documents that reveal the existence of COINTELPRO. And there's, you know, a, a, the kind of a discussion ensues. There's the Rockefeller commissions, a, a couple failed investigations, but then it all culminates with the church committee hearings in the late 70s. And what the church committee reveals is that the F, you know, all this FBI COINTELPRO sabotage, infiltration, entrapment of the left, but also that the CIA was illegally doing this through Operation Chaos and Operation Merrimack and Operation Resistance, which were sort of subsets of Operation Chaos. The CIA very successfully destroyed all of its files or most of its files. So we don't know as that much about Operation Chaos, but the FBI, the CIA Later historians have have unpacked and put together what happened with Operation Chaos. And what happened was that the CIA, sorry, the FBI was in its uh, rampaging with COINTELPRO actually starts sniffing around the CIA. Alan Dulles meets Hoover and says, look, you're not going to investigate the CIA. We have our own counterintelligence investigations, but we'll work with you. And so it actually came out of a kind of bureaucratic conflict, and then Operation Chaos is is essentially a kind of sister program to COINTELPRO and targets the new left. In the 80s, there's some reforms made in the wake of the Church Committee, named for Senator Frank Church of Idaho. Then the 80s, the FBI cracks down on the Central American Solidarity Movement, groups like the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador. Then in the early 90s, they start targeting the new right to some extent. Um, there's, you know, there's the standoff at Ruby Ridge. There's the Branch Davidians and the siege by the ATF of their compound in Waco, Texas, and the murder of a bunch of these weird cult members. But they were basically harmless and apolitical. And then there's this militia movement reaction to that and the FBI infiltrates that and shuts well, it down. Well, they were doing some sketchy stuff with their own members, right? The Branch Davidians? Yeah. yeah I think there like, was, I think there yeah, was like, like child, child abuse. abuse yeah. there, was, there was allegations of child abuse, but they were not planning a revolution. They were not planning yeah. to, you know, kill public officials. They, they lived in their own insular weird world. They were also not white supremacists. They were cast as right wing white supremacist lunatics because they were Christians, but they weren't. They were actually an integrated group. They went back to the 30s. You know, cults are weird. Then there's 9-11 and uh, the Patriot Act. You say Patriot Act and the gloves come off. All the, the restraints of the church committee are removed and the FBI goes to town framing primarily innocent, often totally apolitical American Muslims. There is no one other than the FBI and, and federal prosecutors, who maintains that the vast majority of these anti-jihadist cases weren't totally invented by paid informants. They are entrapment. They are uh, the crimes that are alleged that people go to jail on conspiracy for would not have occurred in the vast majority of cases had it not been for these entrepreneurial FBI infiltrators terrorizing these uh these you know innocent people so the, the point to be drawn from all this and along the way the fbi is always collecting compromat 
you know, compromising material on the political class. That's how J. Edgar Hoover builds this giant agency, which has no charter out of a desk, the bureau, but within the, the Justice Department. So now these MAGA Republicans are pissed off because there's evidence, and I think it's quite credible, that the FBI has targeted them and infiltrated their movements. The, the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping plot, that was very much uh, the result of over a dozen FBI informants infiltrating this group, the Wolverines, who, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, are a bunch of weird losers, right? And uh, they were the infiltrate the informants were in constant contact with a bevy of FBI agents, and they let this whole kidnapping plot go as far as it could, right? I mean, they it, they did a lot to gin it up, and so the right is freaked out about that. They are very suspicious about the fact that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were heavily infiltrated by the FBI. The national chairman of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tario, had for 10 years been an FBI informant. And he'd worked on cases involving immigration, on drugs, on the, the fencing and relabeling of stolen diabetes tests. I mean, all sorts of stuff, right? And this guy's in charge of the group. And he, he tells Reuters that, oh, I routinely tell police forces about what the group does. So you know, the right wing is is suspicious of this. They're the top investigator for the January 6th committee hearing said that there was no intelligence failure. There was a failure to act on intelligence. So all of these agencies were collecting evidence and they were sending it up the, the chain of command. The Capitol Police had their own intelligence work being done looking at social media and who knows what else. And they were reporting up the chain. They were saying, these people, some of them are going to be armed. They're going to come after Congress. Uh, Congress is going to be in session. Mike Pence is going to be there. This is all at least two weeks before the event. And they say, you know, we think there needs to be proper security. There isn't proper security. Yeah, why is Those that? leftists I know say, well, that's just, you know, bureaucratic snafus. I, you know, I, I think there needs to be an investigation. It's kind of hard to believe that it is just bureaucratic snafus. Uh, why do you think it is, though? Not bureau- if it's not. I mean, I don't think it's bureaucratic snafus. What do I think it is? What do you think it is? I think it was FBI infiltration. I mean, I think, I think that um, Trump derangement syndrome is really out of out of control, and um, this relates to another article that Aaron and I talked about on another show, which is about Trump's foreign policy. I mean, I think that Trump basically gave the rich most of what they wanted in terms of deregulation and tax breaks. But on the foreign policy front, the guy was a total vandal. He attacked American empire in very dangerous ways. He didn't do it because he's some sort of anti-imperialist. He did it because he's got this crass, short-term transactional sensibility. He did it in ways that are totally contradictory and haphazard. But if you look at his record of you know with trying to withdraw a third of all the troops from Germany, military science holds that in combat, if a unit loses a third of its troops, it becomes combat ineffective. The forty military installations in Germany that house U.S. personnel are not just foot soldiers, you know, waiting for a Russian attack. I and mean, that's a the central hub of a high tech system that that covers the whole uh, region. I mean, Africom is based in 
in uh, Germany. So, I mean, he wanted a third of the troops out of there. He, he get a quarter of the troops out of South Korea. He takes all the special forces out of Somalia. He withdraws troops from Syria, moves them over to where the oil is. I mean, he's just like wreaking havoc. And I think that for elites, political elites, this guy was seen as a real danger. I mean, put yourself in the position of someone high up in the FBI or the State Department. If you really thought that America was a force for good, that it was the indispensable and vital state within the international system, would it not be your duty to prevent this guy, Donald Trump, from being reelected? So I, I would not dismiss the idea that there was an element of rope-a-dope and that they had yeah. these groups in, infiltrated and they were like, well, let's not, you know, let's not be too heavy with the uh, the security of the Capitol. Let these freaks show themselves to the world so that we can really just snuff this guy's political chances out. Right. So that's that's what I suspect. But I don't know where I agree with you about Trump is certainly the national security state hated him. And that was obvious via Russiagate when they tried to sabotage his presidency by investigating him for a conspiracy theory invented by his Democratic Party opponents. Um, and so I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if some of that carried over to how they responded to uh, January 6th, both, you know, in the lead up to it and uh, on the day of. Where I slightly disagree is only in terms, of, in terms of Trump's actual policy. I still think they got everything they wanted. He did pursue a neocon foreign policy because... I think fundamentally he has no real core. Well, okay, we're, we're going to disagree. But, I don't think but, that's but, the but, case. I mean, they but, okay. they they tried. They actively tried to sabotage him. When he and yes, his regime, he's like, he, I want to And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Great to hear from Christian Parenti. Always yeah. sharp analysis and you can check out his latest uh, writing uh, in Compact Magazine. And uh, to see the full interview with Christian, which gets really interesting, there's a little bit of a mini debate between Christian and Aaron. Uh, make sure you go to usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com. All right. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Bye. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 